The Paul Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories. And now, your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. It's an honor to have you as a listener of the Paul Leslie Hour. Thank you for joining me. If you like the interview, please consider sharing it. The Paul Leslie Hour is made possible through listeners and viewers like you. You can contribute any amount at thepaulleslie.com. There have been many interviews and many more are on the way. I'm going to play this interview with Richard M. Sherman, an inductee of the Songwriters Hall of Fame. Richard M. Sherman, who with his brother, Robert Sherman, wrote some of the most well-known songs in motion picture history, particularly Disney. His songs have also been featured at the Disney Amusement Park, such as It's a Small World, and they've been recorded by recording artists like Annette Fenicello. Many films and animated features include songs written by Richard M. Sherman, Mary Poppins, The Jungle Book, The Many Adventures of Winnie the Pooh, Bedknobs and Broomsticks, Charlotte's Web, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, and others. Richard M. Sherman is going to be turning 93 on June 12th. I want to wish him a happy birthday, and I hope you all enjoy the interview. Happy listening. Ladies and gentlemen, it is our extreme pleasure to welcome this man, Mr. Richard M. Sherman. He's an inductee of the Songwriters Hall of Fame, and no matter where you are, Chances are you have heard his music. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you. It was a joy to be with you. I think most stories are best from the beginning. Could you tell us a little bit about what life was like growing up for you? Well, I actually came from a very musical family. My father was a popular songwriter in the 20s and 30s and 40s, and he wrote a lot of big hits like uh, You Gotta Be a Foot. Old hero and things like that, which were the older people would know that song. <laughs> or Eddie Cantor's famous "Potatoes are cheaper, tomatoes are cheaper." Now at the time to fall in love, a big a depression hit. There was a big depression hit song, and you know he was a very, very prolific and talented man. And we grew up in, in a house, my brother Robert and I, a house full of music and full of literature and art, and we, we talked about it all the time. And the show business and it was a very creative kind of an atmosphere my mom had been a, an actress and she played beautiful piano she played a beautiful piano and my dad was a fine musician he played great piano as well and it sort of came natural to me i could play it you know just and to hear something in play it was just part of the the atmosphere i never took it for uh, as anything very particularly special <laughs> of course i put it to work years later but my brother wanted to write plays and art project. He was a painter. He loved to paint. And he also wrote poetry. And he was a talented guy. And I I used to do a little of that, but mostly I was very musical. And years later, when Bob and I got out of college, is when uh, Dad said, you know, you guys should team up. And he put us together, and we became the Sherman Brothers. And I learned a lot about lyric writing and started writing lyrics. And Bob learned a lot about music and started composing. And so we sort of like taught each other a lot about the thing that we were best at, and uh, we became a hell of a team. <laughs> and that was it. Well, speaking of your father, having written songs recorded by the likes of Eddie Cantor, what did your father teach you most about songwriting? Aha, uh -huh. well, that's a very good question. I'm glad you asked that, because he, he gave us a secret 
to what a great song was all about, and that was the idea behind the song. He said, you don't have to just write a tune or just rhyme moon, June, and goon. It's just, that's not the way you write songs. You come up with an idea, and you set the idea to music and lyrics, and that becomes something special. And then he said, you have three little words you can remember. Keep it simple, singable and sincere, and be original at all times. Always be original, but keep it with the three S's, simple, singable, sincere. We try to always do that, write a sincere song that was a tune with a catchy phrase in it so you could sing it, you could hum it, and uh, try to be very, very original about the whole thing so you didn't just say it the way everybody else said it. And that was that was our uh, modus operandi, you might say. You mentioned that you primarily wrote the lyrics, and he primarily composed melody. No, Are no, you... I didn't say that. No, I said, no, we, we both had a gift in, in that area. My brother oh. was I was very much in, into words, and I was very much into music. But we learned from each other, so we wrote together, and we collaborated on all of our lyrics, and we collaborated on the music as well. I was the musician of the two of us, but he had a lot to do with how I wrote the tune and what I would say, and if we lift. You know, your your racer is the greatest friend of any writer, and what you don't what you don't do. The thing we always try to find out is a way of doing things that nobody else would have done it. Personally, are you more moved by the lyrics or the melody, or could you even decide? The combination of both is the thing that gets to me. If the words and music really mate and become part of one, that that moves me very much. Then I hear something. That's a song. That's a great. That's, then it's great. If you just hear notes and words, it's uh, lots of people write notes and words. You don't remember them. They come in and they go out. But a song, something that has a catchphrase, has something to say. My God, you you just don't forget it. You just hear it and don't. It stays with you. That, that's that's a great song. Do you believe you were born with the gift of songwriting? I believe I was born with a gift of musical ability. Songwriting is a is a skill and an art that you develop, you work at. You have to write a lot of garbage before you come up with the good ones. You have to learn how to discern between the obvious and the thing that makes it special and fresh. And that takes honing and takes years to really become proficient at it. That's that's my personal opinion. Now, there are a lot of one-shot wonders that c- sit in the garage and write one song and become hit writers. And I don't know if they can follow through with that, but they can write a song. But to write consistently and to write of a high quality constantly, it takes a lot of years of practice and everything to do that, in my opinion. How did you find your way to Beverly Hills? <laughs> well, I was very, it was very fought easily. My father and mother moved from, from New York City in 1937, and I was a little boy then, and we moved to Beverly Hills, California, and I lived here ever since. This is my home. How old were you when you moved out there to Beverly Hills? Well, I was born in 1928, so I guess I was about nine. Can you remember your impression of it, moving out there as a young oh, guy? Oh, I do. I remember vividly. I remember vividly the smell of orange blossoms in the air. It was so warm and friendly and, and picturesque, and there was green everywhere, and, and it was just a, a wonderful place, and it wasn't overcrowded. It was, you know, pre-war, pre-the Second World War, and it was just a quiet kind of a village. Beverly Hills was a little village. It wasn't a sprawling, sprawling city. The Los Angeles, greater Los Angeles area now is just one continuous city. It goes on and on and on, but in those days, there were little segments like Beverly Hills, and then it was Westwood, and it was Brentwood, little villages kind of things. And now it's all one big 
clump. <laughs> what do you find Southern California to be like as a writer and a creator? I think when a writer writes, he's with himself and his suggestions and his ideas. And he can be in a closet in Bermuda. He can be on, on a, a, a trolley in, in China. He could be anywhere. It's, he's in his mind he's writing. I don't believe that where I live, where I write, has any bearing on what I write. Because I've written, I've been in London, I've written in a hotel room, I've been in New York, and I've written in a, in a little tiny apartment uh, with a pull-down bed. I've been everywhere and uh, written. And it's what goes on in your brain. It's all, it's all up there. And the environment, the fact that I can smell uh, orange blossoms in, in, in Southern California has no bearing on what I'm writing. Because I'm I'm where I, where the subject is. I've always written to the subject and the flavor of the subject. How did it feel the first time something that you wrote was performed or recorded by an artist? Well, let me tell you, it's a very, very, very special thing, particularly to someone who strives to be walking with those wonderful greats that you admire. And when you hear somebody who really knows how to perform a song, do it. Oh, it's, there's nothing like it. It's like you're walking on a cloud. It's, I remember vividly the very early recordings. And I remember the, the great recordings that were made during my career. And, and I can never forget hearing them the first time. When I first heard Julie Andrews sing A Spoonful of Sugar, I mean, everybody was smiling and happy. I was the one with tears in my eyes. They were coming out, and I was crying because it was so beautiful. They were happy tears. But it was a realization of, of something incredible that we'd been dreaming of to do this film called Mary Poppins. And this was the keynote song that Julie Andrews sang as, as Mary Poppins. And it was just incredible. I mean, we said, oh, my God, this is, this is it. This is it. And it's a great feeling. How important do you believe it is to be optimistic? positive? Well, I tell you, it, you can't just sort of turn a switch and say, I am going to be optimistic and I'm going to be a positive person. You're either born with it. There are people that are just gloomy folks and they just, they see the bad side of everything. I've always seen the, the, that the glass is half filled. I, I never say, oh, it's half empty. I will, it's just a, a feeling I've had. And I think Bob and I had that optimistic, positive feeling in our lives, it just maybe it was given to us by our parents or something. They gave us confidence. And Walt Disney was our boss for so many years, and he was a very positive man. He hated negativism. We were very positive in our thinking. So it's not something you say, hey, I'm going to be a positive thinker. It's just that's the way I am. That's the way I was constructed. And I, a lot of it, I think, has to do with the positive feelings I used to get from my folks because they said, you got to believe in yourself. That's where it starts. You just mentioned the late Walt Disney. What was your first impression of Walt Disney when you met him? We didn't realize it, but Walt Disney was very aware of the Sherman Brothers because we had been writing songs for a little girl named Annette Funicello, and she had done a lot of rock and roll songs that we had written, and then she was starting to do production songs, and Walt was aware of all of our songs. He'd heard the records, and Annette was his star. She was in this group called the, the Mouseketeers, and she was the biggest, pop, most popular of all the Musketeers, And so she uh, brought us into this, the realm of Walt Disney by Walt wanted to put her in a, in a film. And he said, why don't you get those two young fellas that are writing the cute songs for her? Because he liked our songs to write something for her for this film. And so when we did write the song, we were brought into his office to play it for him. 
absolutely terrified because here was this man that we'd seen on the television every Sunday night <laughs> telling about his shows. And, and here he was in, in person, in the flesh. It was terrifying, but he was so friendly and warm and nice about everything. It was a great experience for us, and he liked what we did, and he gave us more assignments. And next thing you know, we were his guys. You mentioned Annette Fonicello a little earlier. Yes. As someone who is named Paul, my mother would sing Tall Paul to me all oh, the time. So tell us about <laughs> Yeah. Tell us about writing that song. Well, Tall Paul was a song that actually came about this way. I was struggling, as my brother was too, trying to just sort of keep ourselves afloat and had I had different jobs in order to keep myself in the music business. I did artificial flowers. I, I, I decorated dentist's offices and private homes with, with plastic plants. And one day I was driving down a street in, in Los Angeles and I saw a sign. It said the tall girl's shop and the word tall was written vertically, not horizontally. It was down tall girl's shop and in a, in vertical line straight down. And I looked at the word for the first time because you never think of, of words vertically. You think of them horizontally. So I think tall, that's a wonderful word, tall. What rhymes with tall? Paul, tall, Paul. Mm, that's a good idea. That's a good title. Because back in 1958, mind you, it's a long time ago, a lot of hit songs were being written, and boys were singing them, and there were songs about a girl's characteristics. Long, tall, Sally, short, fat, fanny, skinny, mini. There were songs about a girl, and they were rockers, very cute rockers. So I was trying to be commercial. I said, a rocker song about a guy, and he's the tallest guy in school, and she's in love with him. Tall Paul, he's my all. That rhymes, that's good. So I came in with that title one day to my brother's office. He had a little tiny publishing house. He was working on a song with this fellow who was in the room with him, working on his song. And they had a song, and it, it said, Chalk on the side or missiles in a tree. Everybody knows that she loves me. And he had that little sort of triplet going along. And I said, I've got a thought which might work for that thing. And they were looking for a song for a girl to sing. And I said, if you say writing on the wall, everybody knows that she loves Paul. Tall Paul, he's my all. Oh, my God. Everybody got excited. We started writing the song. He finished the song. I said, this is a really cute song. And a little record was made of it with a girl named Judy Harriet, a small label called Surf Records. And it came out. And nothing happened. It just laid there. But a, an executive at Disney, and this is where fate steps in, heard that song on the radio. And he was given a, a memo, look for material for Annette Funicello. We're going to put her on records. And so he, a fellow named Mo Perskell, he was in New York. He got a hold of that song, found out who the writers were, called us. They made a deal with my brother's publishing company to co-publish Tall Paul, and it became a smash hit, a top 10 song, and that became the doorway to our whole career, that little ditty. Wow. I wanted to also ask about Chim Chim Cheree. Aha, that's the Chimney Sweep song in Mary Poppins, right. It's been recorded by a lot of different people. What do you think it is about the song that people find so appealing? Well, who can explain these things? There's a catchphrase. First of all, 
if you hear the title, say, what is that all about? You know, and we're playing with the word chimney, and chimney is a is a mess of a word, and so we broke it up in the chimney. We gave it a little rhythm, and then we said, let's play with it like we'd say, chim chim churu, chim chim churi, chim chim chura. We were playing with that, and we said. There was a legend about chimney sweeps, and this was we were writing the song for a character who was going to be a major character in Mary Poppins, and so we wanted to give him a song. And the chimney sweep is a very low man on the totem pole of life, you might say, but he he has special charm about him. And there's a lucky legend that if you shake hands with a chimney sweep, or if you if you get a little soot on your hand from him, or something like, or he blows you a kiss. That is great luck. That is good luck. So we said, wow, what an idea for a song. It's sensational. Mary Poppins could sing it and teach children all about the, the legend of, of chimney seats. You see, long before the tune, long before the lyrics, came the idea. The idea of the whole song was the thing that gave us the inspiration to go ahead and do it. And we played a lot with how to play with it. And finally, we had chim chimini, chim chimini, chim chim tree. It had a rhythm. It had a one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three going as we played with those words. I remember my brother threw a line out. He said, one chimney, two chimney, three chimney. I said, yeah, that's nice, but I don't like one chimney. How about playing with a chim chimney, chim chimney? Yeah, yeah, that's better. And that, I mean, Bob and I, we used to play ping pong with, with words and ideas back and forth, and that's how it came out. And so what is it that makes it happen? I think it's the concept, the idea, the things behind it, the melodic line, the idea that it, it has a minor yet a major feel to it because there's a uh, what they call a chromatic descending line in the harmonies that gives it a major and minor feeling it's not just a heavy minor feeling and all these things are part and parcel of what goes into the song of course there try to make it simple great great answer though (laughs) there have been so many legendary singers recording artists who have recorded your songs everyone from louis armstrong to Ringo Starr. So who has been the best at interpreting a song you wrote? Oh, I mean, there's so many great ones. I mean, Burl Ives did some great songs. And Louis Armstrong, you don't get better than that. I think I've got to give the medal, (laughs) if there is such a thing, who really created created something forever, and that, I think, is Julie. Julie Andrews singing Feed the Birds, for example. Nobody ever sang it better. And a lot of great, great, great people have done it. Julie Andrews singing Spoonful of Sugar, Stay Awake. Those, those songs, uh, the duets she did with, with Dick Van Dyke are incredible. And Dick, of course, is superb. And they did the ch- Supercalifragilistic and w- with such vitality and showmanship. And I, I think there's so many things that I can give as examples of what I love about that. But I think Poppins and Julie are the highlights of my musical output, although there have been a lot of other things that I've done, but I'm very proud of that. This is probably a just about impossible question. (laughs) Oh, good. But here we go. If you could pick one song, if you had to pick one that would be most associated with the Sherman Brothers, which one would it be? Most associated? Oh, my goodness. Your theme song. Well, here's the thing. There are so many songs that are very personal to me. I think there's one song that, that people either want to kiss us or kill us for having written, and and that it's a small world after all. And that song, of course, is 
perhaps the most performed song on earth today because there's no place that the sun goes down that it's a small world isn't playing at a Disney theme park if nowhere else. And it's been translated into practically every language on the face of the earth. So that is our most famous song. And I'm very, very fond of it. Of course, I love the song. It's a message of peace and understanding and a prayer that people would give each other a little respect and love each other and at least learn to live with each other. That's the prayer that's fervent in everybody's mind, if you're sane. But that still is not my personal, personal favorite. I think it would have to be Feed the Birds. And I'll tell you why. Walt loved that song, and I adored Walt. read Walt Disney very, very much. And he used to actually play it for him sometimes. He just would listen to it. He just said, that's what, that's what it's all about, isn't it? Because it has nothing to do with the price of, of breadcrumbs. You know that. Right. Feed the Birds is symbolic. It's a pure symbolism. It, it means you've got to give a little love to people. It costs nothing to do that. And you have to give a little care and understanding, a smile, take the kids out, fly a kite with them, you know, like we did in Mary Poppins. That's feeding the birds. We all need a little of that bird seed. <laughs> what songwriters would you say have influenced you the most? Oh, well, I'd say oh, that's easy because I, I there are certain people that I absolutely dearly worship. <laughs> uh, Jerome Kern, Oscar Hammerstein, Rogers and Hart, Rogers and Hammerstein, the, 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 the same Hammerstein. I think uh, Noel Coward, the great, great, brilliant mind of that Englishman, fantastic. Did I say Rogers and Hart? I did, yes. Johnny Mercer, the genius of Johnny Mercer, and, and the brilliance of Harold Arlen. There, there's so many people that were so very much influenced to me. But I think the biggest personal influence was my dad, who knew how to write a good pop tune. And that was the key to it all. Simple, singable, sincere, and original. That's where it all starts. So most of our songs, no matter how book-oriented they are and how wedded they are to a character or a period, still you can sing it coming out of the theater. You can still hum a, hum a little piece of it, no matter what it is, because we tried to keep them singable so people can be a- access to them. And that a lot of people say, well, that's writing simply. No, it's writing them with that magic, that thing that makes it popular. What do you think about Alan Menken? I think Alan Menken is brilliant. He's a wonderful composer. He's a very nice guy, too. We did a joint concert together, and it was a lot of fun. We have a mutual admiration society. He's, he's very fond of my work, and he says I influence a lot of his, what he's done, and I certainly admire what he's done, and uh, he continues to write beautifully, and uh, he's been very successful, and God bless him. What's the litmus test? What makes a good song a good song? Singability, I think, catchability, originality, the concept, the wedding of the words and the music so they sound like they were done of a singular intelligence. All these things are very, very important. I think words and music have to wed together. I'm not talking about the clever patter songs that people churn out with great inner rhymes and things like that. I'm talking about a song that lives in your heart. That's something that's very, very special, and it's a wedding of of the magic of words and the magic of music coming together to give a third dimension. Yeah, that's it. What is the best thing about being Richard Sherman? (laughs) Well, I still have my help, I think. (laughs) I'm very, very lucky. I'm very aware of the world. I'm very aware of the world we're living in. I always have been, and yet I've been able to carve my own little world of positivism, and you brought that up earlier. 
I think the best thing about being me is I have these wonderful kids. I have grandchildren now, and I have a great wife. We've been married 57 years in July. It's going to be 57 years. I love her, and uh, we have a great life together. And I think it's just a matter we share everything. And I think one of the great joys in my life is the fact that no matter where I go, people know my stuff, and they, they love our songs that, that Bob and I wrote. I just feel very lucky that I've been in the position I have been put in to uh, sometimes I raise money for for very wonderful causes by playing medleys of songs and things like that. I just did a, a big thing for a cancer research thing just the other day. And it, it's it's nice to be able to, to be me. I like being me, and I'm very proud of the things that I did with my brother Bob. I'm very happy about that. I listened to the podcast on Soda Jerker, the two British gentlemen that interviewed you. Oh, yeah. And they paid you a, a lot of compliments, but the one that I thought was funny and a true compliment, they said, we're almost offended at how good your songs are. <laughs> <laughs> so with that, what is the greatest compliment you've ever received as a songwriter? Oh, my goodness. That's so difficult. That's, that's a difficult thing. There's a line in Mary Poppins that I've always loved to quote because it's, it came right right from the heart, and that was when Mr. Banks thinks he's lost everything, and he, he's, he thinks he's been fired from the bank, and Bert and he have a conversation, sort of a man-to-man talk, and then Mr. Banks sort of reflects, and he says, a man has dreams of walking with giants to carve his niche in the edifice of time. These are lines that, that Mr. Banks says. I've always dreamt from the time I was a little boy of walking with giants, of, in other words, the, the Kearns and the Rogers and Hammersteins and the, the Stephen Sondheims and these great, great, great writers of, of song. I wanted to be considered in that league. I wanted to be up there walking with those giants. And every once in a while I think about that, I get a chance to say, yeah, I'm one of them now. Isn't that nice? My mm-hmm. God, it's just a great feeling. I, that's the b- biggest joy, I think. I hope I answered the question. I Absolutely. Wow. So this is an open-ended one. For anyone who's listening to this broadcast, wherever they may be, what would you like to say to them? If you're a dreamer and you have hopes and prayers of getting somewhere, never give up. Keep trying. Keep slugging away and give your best to everything you do. Because one day the right person will hear what you've done or read what you've done or see what, what you've created as, as an artist, and they'll say, hey, I like that. And that can start it all, because that's exactly what happened to Bob and me. We kept trying and trying and trying, and one day a little ditty, a little rocker, opened the door to our entire career. And that was what I talked about earlier, you know, give it all you've got all the time. My final question, who is... Richard Sherman. He's a very lucky guy who lives in Beverly Hills, California with his wife and likes to uh, go to the movies, likes to go to plays. I just saw a wonderful revival of Little Abner out here. I laughed myself silly. It was such funny stuff. And I don't know. I just, I enjoy life. Richard Sherman is a very fortunate guy. He does what he loves to do. I still write. I still am involved in a lot of things. We're doing a revival of a stage version, rather, of, of the Jungle Book, and it's very exciting. And that stage version of Bedknobs and Broomsticks, which is also just in the formative stage, but it's very exciting for me. 
and I have a lot of projects that I'm involved in. And so I keep keep busy. I'm 85, going to be 86, and I still feel like I'm about 25. So that's good. That's Richard Sherman. Well, Mr. Sherman, on behalf of the listening audience, thank you very much for this interview. And also, thank you for these songs that have very much found their way in people's hearts from all ages and in places all over the world. It's a wonderful gift that you gave the world. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. And I'm glad to be talking with you. And thank you for all the good questions. <laughs> thank you so much. It was a great pleasure. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. Goodbye.